Morning, Bethel. It's good to see you all this morning as we've come to worship the Lord together. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, We have a lot of text that we're going to cover today, um, but it's verses 1 to 34. So scripture reading is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 34. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? 
I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Amen. You may have a seat. In 2014, a few truck drivers who worked for a company called Oakhurst Dairy in Maine sued the company for overtime pay they felt they were due. Now, what's interesting about this case, at least I think it's interesting because I can be a bit of a grammar nerd, is because the case, the verdict, came down to the presence or absence of what's referred to as the Oxford comma. So if you don't know what that is, an Oxford comma is the last comma just before the conjunction in a series of three or more items. So in the sentence, I like green comma, red comma, blue comma, and orange, that comma right before the and is what's called the Oxford comma. Now some people say it's not necessary, you don't need it, other people say it's absolutely essential, you must have it there, and there's this war going on over whether or not this comma should be in sentences. Well, that came into play in this case over this overtime dispute because the law describing the activities that don't warrant overtime uh, did not have the Oxford comma. So Chad has this, and he's going to put this on the screen for us if you can see it. All right, so... I know this is riveting stuff, but just hang with me for a second. <clears throat> so the canning, processing, preserving, freezing, drying, marketing, storing, and then here's where it gets confusing, packing for shipment or distribution of, and then you have your items. So the Oxford comma, which is missing, would have gone in between shipment and or. And this was a pivotal factor in this court case. So the lack of that comma made the sentence, made the law vague. So it led to the question, does, is it packing for shipment and distribution that are exempt from overtime laws? Are they, are they separate things? Or is it rather that the packing for shipment or the packing for distribution are what is exempt. Do you see the difference? So it's either packing for shipment on the one hand or distribution on the other, or it's packing for shipment and packing for distribution. This was a big deal because these are truck drivers who are bringing this overtime case and they are invested in what that means. All right, so a few months ago, an appeals court ruled in favor of the drivers, saying that the absence of that comma uh, led to an unclear law. And if it holds up in the appeals process, it could cost Oakhurst Dairy, that company, upwards of $10 million. So that one punctuation mark changed the entire meaning of that sentence and could cost that company a whole lot of money. Commas have a way of doing that. So you may have seen this one online. Uh, and this one's hopefully a little bit funnier than that was. Um, but you may have seen this online. It's the difference in let's eat, comma, grandma, 
and let's eat grandma. Like, one of those is perfectly fine, normal thing to say. The other is incredibly disturbing. So as the saying goes, commas save lives. So that's obviously a silly example. And it might be the most nerdy sermon illustration of all time. Um, But Paul makes a similar point about the resurrection of Christ in our text this morning. The resurrection of Jesus is absolutely essential to the Christian faith. Without it, everything crumbles. With it, everything has meaning and our faith stands. This one event, the resurrection of Jesus, has an impact on all of history. It says whether or not Christianity is true or whether or not Christianity is false. So in our text for this morning, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 34, Paul is correcting a grave error in the church in Corinth. So some people in the church were saying there's no resurrection of the dead. Resurrection meaning a return to bodily life after death. Now, by this, they didn't mean that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. They believed that. Paul says as much at the beginning of the chapter that we'll see in a minute. Instead, they meant that they wouldn't be raised from the dead. This was a huge issue because as Paul's going to point out, Jesus' resurrection and the resurrection of Jesus' followers go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. If Jesus was raised, his followers will be raised too. But if Jesus' followers are not going to be raised, that means Jesus wasn't raised. And if Jesus wasn't raised, our faith crumbles to the ground. So the Corinthians desperately need to be corrected here. So how did they come to this view in the first place, though? So at this time in the Greco-Roman world, most people either believed that death was the end, that there's no afterlife, or that death ushered a person into a realm where the soul, the immaterial, greater part of a person, exists apart from the body, the material lesser part of a person. Existing body and soul in the afterlife was virtually inconceivable to people in this culture, if not outright repugnant. So the Christians in Corinth, at least some of them, were likely influenced by this worldview. And so as inconsistent as it was, they believed that Jesus bodily rose from the dead, but they deny that they will bodily be raised from the dead. Our title for the series is Cruciform Living, cruciform meaning in the shape of the cross. And this is yet another example where the Corinthian church needs to hear this, where they need to see the gospel. They need their beliefs about the resurrection to be shaped by the gospel, by Jesus' death and resurrection, and not by the culture around them. So Paul corrects them, and he does so through at least four means. First, He reminds them of the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose on the third day. Second, he exposes their grave error, fleshing out its disastrous implications for the faith. Third, he corrects their belief and highlights their grand future in Christ. And fourth, he delivers a gracious rebuke 
and calls them to action. So that said, let's dive into verses 1 to 11 and our first point, gospel foundation. So before Paul addresses the problem at hand, he's actually not even going to mention the Corinthians' view until verse 12. He goes back to the heart of the matter, to the gospel. He wants to remind the the Corinthians of the good news they believed and why it's so important. And so he begins in verses 1 to 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul preached the gospel to the Corinthians, and they received it. You can actually read about that in Acts chapter 18. And here in our text, Paul spells out what that gospel message involved. So look at verses 3 to 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Jesus, fully God and fully man, lived a perfect life of obedience to God the Father. He succeeded where we, every one of us, have failed. And in our place, he bore God's wrath on the cross for our sins. So like Isaiah 53 prophesies, he paid the penalty for our iniquities. And he did that so we wouldn't have to, so we could be forgiven and made right with God. Jesus heard the verdict guilty, so we can hear the verdict innocent, righteous. And Jesus died there on the cross, and he really died. He didn't pass out. He didn't go into shock. It didn't just look like he was dead. He was dead. And as Matthew says in chapter 27, verses 57 to 61 of his gospel, Jesus was buried. His lifeless body was placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, if that's all there was, that would be a really sad story. It would be a sad story of a man who claimed to be someone he, he wasn't, who perhaps thought he was someone he wasn't. But thankfully, it doesn't end there. It continues. So three days after his death, Friday being day one, Saturday day two, Sunday day three, Jesus was raised in accordance with the scriptures. As Peter says in Acts 2.24, and I love this, God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It could not hold him down. And plenty of people witnessed this. So starting in verse 5, Paul actually gives a list of Jesus' appearances. Look with me there. Starting in verse 5, he says, He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, He appeared to the 12. That's a reference to the 12 disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. You know what I love about that? Two quick things. One, it shows how verifiable Jesus' resurrection was. Hundreds of people saw the resurrected Christ and were alive to tell you about it. And since they were all together when they saw him, they could back up or deny if it didn't happen each other's story. And two, the phrase, fallen asleep. Don't miss that, especially in light of this chapter. 
It's a not-so-subtle hint that for those in Christ, death is not the final word. It's more like a sleep from which we awake to new life with Christ. All right, let's keep going. So, then he appeared, verse 7, to James. That's Jesus' brother. Then to all of the apostles. That's a, a reference not just to the 12 apostles, but to a larger group of people who saw the risen Christ and proclaimed the good news. And then, last of all, verse 8, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So that's Paul. You can read about that in Acts chapter 9. So Paul, whom Acts chapter 9 says in verse 1, was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, was on his way to Damascus when Jesus stepped in. Once a persecutor of the church, Paul met the risen Christ. Or we could say the risen Christ met Paul, and his life was changed in an instant forever. And so he says here in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. You just have to love that. Like, this guy persecuted the church. If anybody is aware of his sin and who he used to be, it's Paul. But look at the effect of grace in this man's life. He knows his sin. He knows who he used to be. But he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. If you're a Christian this morning and you wrestle with the reality of your sin, if, if that is a tool the devil uses to plague you with guilt, to make you forget what Christ has done. Hear this good news that Paul is preaching. Christ died for your sins. That's it. The penalty has been paid. The guilty verdict you deserve has already been handed down, and it wasn't on you. It was on Christ. So now you are going to hear, we have heard in Christ, not guilty. That's good news. So Paul says, his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. That's the apostles. Though, unless you think he's showboating here, he says, it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. And that's Paul's point. We preached the gospel, which includes Jesus' death and his resurrection, and you Corinthians believed it. And they must continue doing so. So step back into verses 1 and 2 with me for a minute. Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in the past, in which you stand in the present, and by which you are being saved in the present, looking to the future, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So if the Corinthians abandon the gospel message and they are in danger of that with their view of the resurrection of the dead, they will prove to have believed in vain, to have never truly received the gospel in the first place. And Paul loves these people. He does not want that to happen. That's why he gives them this warning. The gospel, as Paul says in verse 3, is of first importance. No news is 
greater or more significant than this. Reject this message and die in your sins, and you will be separated from God, bearing the weight of your sins for all eternity. But believe this message. Trust in Jesus to forgive you of your sins and be your king, and you will be saved with the certain hope of future resurrection and eternal life with God. So if you're here this morning and if you aren't a Christian, receive this good news. Turn away from your sin and trust in Christ to save you. He is ready and willing to do so. So lay down your efforts at making yourself righteous. Lay down your efforts at being good enough and come to Jesus, the King of the universe, empty-handed and ask him to save you. He is ready and willing to do it, and he has the power to do it. He will do it. So if you're in that boat today, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, come and get me after the service. I'd love to hang out with you, share, you more, share uh, more with you about this. If you don't have time after the service, come and get me, and we'll set up a time to meet later. Just come and get me if that's you and you want to talk more. Now, if you are a Christian, remember that the gospel continues to be good news for you. It wasn't just good news back then when you heard it as a non-Christian. This is good news now. It's something we have to keep on believing. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of the Christian life. It is inaccurate to think the gospel is what saves non-Christians, and then Christians mature by trying hard to live according to biblical principles. It is more accurate to say that we are saved by believing the gospel and then we are transformed in every part of our minds, hearts, and lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. We are being saved by this gospel if we hold on to it. So remember it every day. Wake up every morning and remind yourself of what Jesus has done of who you are in Christ, of whose you are in Christ. So Paul reminds the Corinthians of the gospel they believed, emphasizing particularly Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Next, in verses 12 to 19, and this is our second point, he turns specifically to the grave error that some of the Corinthians are committing. So look with me at verse 12. Paul says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? This is the problem with the Corinthians thinking. Some of them are saying there's no resurrection of the dead while at the same time confessing Christ as raised from the dead. They somehow have held these contradictory beliefs, but Paul will allow that to continue no longer. There is way too much at stake. As he's going to show, you can't deny the resurrection of believers without also denying the resurrection of Christ. And if you deny the resurrection of Christ, you've abandoned the gospel. You're no longer in the faith. And so he corrects them in the clearest of terms. Two times, once in verse 13 and another time in verse 16, he says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, if the dead aren't raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And on both occasions, he lists three consequences if Jesus stayed dead in the tomb. So let's follow his train of thought together. 
Starting in verse 13, he says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, one, then our preaching is in vain. So Paul and the others who proclaim the gospel would have been preaching the so-called good news about a failed Messiah. But there's nothing good at all about that. If Jesus wasn't raised, they're wasting their breath. That's not all, too. Our preaching is not only in vain. Verse 14, your faith is in vain. So you have believed in a false Messiah who can't really save you. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if he didn't conquer death, he didn't conquer sin either. So you have no hope of being saved. You've trusted in a false Messiah and a man who wasn't who he claimed to be. There's a third here. So verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. So Paul and the apostles are liars. They're saying God did something he didn't do, and they're misrepresenting God. That's serious. So three consequences right here if Christ has not been raised. Paul's going to really press this point home, and so he essentially says it again. So look with me at verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Remember, he said almost that exact same thing in verse 13. And if Christ has not been raised, one, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So Paul says in Romans 4.25, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses or sins, and he was raised for our justification. Justified meaning being declared righteous, not guilty by God. That's our gospel hope. But if Jesus wasn't raised, there is no justification. And if there is no justification, if, if we can't be declared righteous by God, our sins haven't been paid for. Jesus didn't accomplish what he set out to do. But again, that's not all. Paul mentions two additional things. Verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those people you know, Corinthians, who died trusting in Jesus, are gone. They died in their sins and are at best gone and at worst, they're bearing the wrath of God for their sins because it hasn't been dealt with. And then lastly, it says in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If we stake our lives on the gospel of Jesus Christ and he turns out to be a false Messiah, a messianic pretender, we are ordering our lives around a falsehood and we warrant pity. One, co one commentator summarizes all of this in this way. He says, quote, It isn't just that Jesus is Messiah and that he's been raised from the dead, but we know Jesus is Messiah and we announce him as such because he's been raised from the dead. 
It's only the resurrection that makes the crucifixion appear anything other than a horrible end for another failed Messiah. So in other words, Good Friday is only good if it's followed by Resurrection Sunday. If Jesus stayed in the tomb, he wasn't who he claimed to be. And he didn't just fail to defeat death. He failed to defeat sin too, and we are left dead in our sins. Nothing has changed. We've been deceived, every one of us. So if Jesus hasn't been raised, the consequences are horrific. Christianity comes crumbling to the ground. I read one commentary that talked about it like dominoes. You, you kick over the one and the whole thing is going to come down. Paul wants the Corinthians to see this. He wants to see uh, this because their claim that the dead aren't raised, taken to its logical end, means that Jesus wasn't raised either. So do you see that connection? That's why he is so adamant to correct their view on what happens to believers after they die. If believers aren't raised, Jesus wasn't raised. If Jesus wasn't raised, faith falls apart. So they can't confess that Christ was raised while at the same time believing that his followers won't be. Those things are mutually exclusive. If one is true, the other is necessarily false. If there's no resurrection of the dead, Jesus wasn't raised. If Jesus was raised, was raised, though, his followers will be too. And that's exactly Paul's point in verses 20 to 28. So since Jesus was raised, a grand future awaits his followers. So look with me at verses 20 to 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus, Paul says, is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So like the first fruits of a harvest that point toward the additional crop to come, Jesus' bodily resurrection comes before and guarantees the bodily resurrection of everyone who dies trusting him for salvation. That is take-it-to-the-bank kind of guarantee. Good news for us this morning. Death came through Adam. That's the bad news. All those years ago in the Garden of Eden, he listened to the voice of the serpent. He doubted God good, God's good word, and he sinned against the Lord. And as a result... God punished him, saying in Genesis 2, 19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you were dust, and to dust, dust you shall return. That's death. And as Adam's descendants, that is our fate as well. We are sinners by nature and by choice, Unless Jesus returns beforehand, we, every one of us, is going to die one day. The wages of sin is death. But here's the good news. Whereas Adam brought death, Jesus ushered in life. So like a prince coming to rescue a damsel in distress, Jesus 
stepped in and he conquered the foe. He conquered sin and death. So through his perfect life, through his death on the cross and his resurrection, he did everything necessary to make us right with God for Adam's curse to be turned on its head. And the promise for us is that if we turn from our sins and trust in Jesus to save us, he will and death will not have the final word. For all those who trust in Jesus and side with him, resurrection is promised. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That is awesome. Like Such good news for us this morning, but Paul wants us to know that it's not going to happen just yet. The resurrection of believers is not going to happen just yet. We have to wait. So look with me at verses 23 to 28. He says, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. So there's an order to the resurrection. Jesus was first. Then all those who belong in him, who are in him, will be raised at his coming. Now, it might be helpful to point out here that Paul isn't denying that believers immediately go to be with the Lord in spirit when they die. He's just not commenting on it. In fact, he actually affirms that that believers go to be with the Lord when they die in 2 Corinthians 5.8. But here, he's simply saying that when Jesus returns, all those who have died in faith will be resurrected. They will be with the Lord, soul and body. And when this happens, when the dead in Christ are raised to life, Jesus will finally, completely destroy every rule, authority, and power and deliver the kingdom to God the Father. He alone, as the king, has the authority and power to accomplish this. So as Psalm 8.6 says, which is quoted here, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. There is not a single enemy of Jesus that is going to stand at his coming. All will be dealt with. Every rule, every authority, every power dealt with. And death itself, which even now is a defeated but living enemy, will be put in its grave. And then, after the dead in Christ are raised and Jesus' enemies have been dealt with, Paul says that Jesus, God the Son, will be subjected to God the Father. Now, don't let that comment throw you That's not a comment on Jesus' essence, on his equality with God. It rather refers to his role, his function in subjection to the Father. And Jesus will be subjected to the Father 
that God may be all in all, that God may reign supreme without any foe. So do you see the picture? When Jesus comes back, those who are in him are going to be raised from the dead. Jesus will deal with all of his enemies, including death, and after it's done, he hands the kingdom back over to the Father, that God may be all in all. There is no foe left. God reigns supreme. So let's step back for a second and think about what all this means. First off, it sheds even more light, I think, on why it's so crucial to affirm the resurrection of Jesus and his followers. So if Jesus wasn't raised, and if his followers won't be raised, then God does not get the victory over death. And he will. No foe will stand. Death itself is a defeated enemy and will be fully vanquished at Jesus' return. A second, it means that all those negative consequences that Paul mentioned in verses 12 to 19 are actually positives. Think about that. So in those verses, Paul's fleshing out what happens if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, but he was. So let's look at those again, but read them in a positive light. So Christ has been raised. Because that's true, our preaching is not in vain. Jesus lives. What we declare here on Sunday mornings is not in vain. What you go to work and share with your coworkers, what you share with your family members and friends, the gospel is not in vain. This really happened. It is really good news for everyone who hears it and believes. So it's not in vain. So let's get out and be sharing the message. Two, your faith is not in vain. Jesus really rose from the dead. Believing in him is not in vain. We have been saved from our sins. Our Savior does live. He was exactly who he claimed to be, and God showed that by getting him up out of the grave three days after he died. That's good news. Three, we are not misrepresenting God when we proclaim that Christ has been raised. God really did raise Jesus from the dead. And so if we are proclaiming that, we're simply proclaiming truth, not misrepresenting God. Four, your faith is not futile and you are no longer in your sins. So remember that passage uh, that we looked at from Romans 4? Let me read that for us again. So Paul says there that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, our sins, and raised for our justification. That really happened. Our sins have been dealt with. Our Savior did rise from the dead. We do have a certain hope in Christ. Five, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have not perished. They are with him now in spirit and one day will be raised to everlasting life. So if you are in a position where you feel the sting of death. Maybe you fear death. Maybe you have a loved one who's died, who's died in Christ. Can you see how this passage speaks, speaks to that? 
we don't have to fear death. Death is not the end. It's like in Christ alone, that song that we sang. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. There's no fear left. Death is like a sleep from which we will awake and be united body and soul to live with Christ forever. And if you have, if you have a loved one who has died in Christ, oh, there's so much hope here. If Christ wasn't raised, the person is gone. It is such bad news. But Jesus has been raised. And there is a certain future ahead for all those who trust in him. Bodily resurrection from the dead. It will happen, guaranteed. All right, then lastly here, we are not to be pitied. If Jesus wasn't raised and we are ordering our lives around a false Messiah, we should be pitied. But since he was raised, we don't need to be pitied. Jesus reversed the effects of sin. All those who trust in him have the assurance that death is not the final word. Instead, they'll be raised to life at Jesus' return. And to drive this truth home, Paul mentions a couple of more problems if the dead are not raised in Christ. And that brings us to our final point, gracious, gracious rebuke. So look with me at verses 29 to 32 here. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised, why are people baptized on their, on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So here Paul singles out two additional problems if the dead aren't raised. First, he deals with the baptism of the dead. Now, that is a confusing verse. I'm not entirely sure what Paul means there, but there are a couple of options. So one, he could have in mind a practice of vicarious baptism. Uh, could be that there are believers in Corinth who are being baptized on behalf of loved ones who have died in faith but did not get a chance to be baptized before they died. Now, if that's the case, it's really important to point out here that Paul is not condoning that practice. He's just pointing out the absurdity of it. Why be baptized for the dead, he says, if the dead aren't raised? That makes no sense at all. But Paul could also have in mind here the practice of Christian baptism in which believers who are united with Jesus in his death and resurrection go underwater, symbolizing death to sin to our old self, and rise up out of the water, symbolizing new life in Christ. So one commentator puts it like this, baptism assumes death and resurrection. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then baptism becomes a pointless rite that falsely represents something that will not happen. The dead will not rise. So it's not clear what Paul is referencing. Could be one of those two things. Um, there are additional views as well. But at any rate, he's showing that the practice of baptism for the dead is absurd if the dead aren't raised. And second, he mentions his own suffering. So Paul was constantly in danger, facing the threat of death on a daily basis basis. If you want to read about some of the suffering he endured, let me encourage you later, go check out 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 
There's a list there of the suffering that he endured. But what's his point here? That if the dead aren't raised, his suffering, his fighting with beasts at Ephesus, which could simply refer to the human opposition that he faced, is worthless. Why go through all that if there's no hope? If the dead aren't raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If the dead aren't raised, Jesus wasn't raised. If Jesus wasn't raised, we are, every single one of us, wasting our time here today. We should be out doing something else. We shouldn't daily seek to live our lives in submission to King Jesus. We should be living it up while we still can. But, as we've seen, the dead will be raised because Jesus was raised, and that changes everything. And so Paul concludes in verses 33 to 34, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame." Now, here Paul might be, when he says bad company ruins good morals, referencing the culture at the time. Remember, you've got a culture where some people believe that death is the end, and also that, or, or that death uh, is simply ushering into a realm where the immaterial exists, but not the material. And that led to a certain kind of lifestyle, led to licentiousness for a lot of folks, a lot of immorality. So it's possible when Paul says bad company ruins good morals, he's encouraging the Corinthians to, again, not conform to the culture that's around them. He calls them to wake up from their drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. We've already seen in 1 Corinthians how uh, this group of believers are possibly influenced by their view here on the resurrection. In that chapter, Paul prohibits sexual immorality and he does so on the grounds that our bodies are for the Lord and will one day be raised up. So it's possible that some were engaging in sexual immorality thinking, sin in the body, doesn't matter. We're not going to be bodies in eternity. And Paul's saying, oh, yes, you will. If you are in Christ, you absolutely will. And what you do in your bodies matters. He says, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. In asserting that there is no resurrection of believers, the Corinthians are in danger of committing a grave error, abandoning the gospel. Because again, their view, taken to its logical end, means that Jesus Christ wasn't raised. Paul is calling them to account. He's calling them to change. And he says, I say this to your shame. So for us this morning, I think we need to hear this and do a few things. We need to keep believing the gospel. This is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. It was good news for us when we heard it, when we weren't in Christ and became believers, and it's good news for us now. We must continue believing this. We have to, as Paul continually calls the Corinthians, to not conform to the culture around us. This belief for them about the resurrection of the dead would have set them apart from the culture around them. And we are called to, to be the same. 
It might not be in reference to our belief on the resurrection of the dead, although it might. It could be other issues. So we could ask ourselves, I think, what are the ways in which we are tempted to conform to the culture, to sacrifice what's true in order to look like the world around us? We need to leave here this morning, finally, rejoicing. The emphasis of 1 Corinthians 15 is you must believe that Jesus' followers are raised because he was raised. What greater news could we leave with today? Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That changes everything. So let's leave here believing in it and clinging to Christ and going out for the sake of the name, telling others about him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Grateful that you have not hidden yourself, but revealed yourself to us. Lord, we are grateful that you revealed yourself to us through the word, Jesus, who came and did what was necessary to make us right with you through his life, death, and resurrection. Lord, it's in that and that gospel message that we hope today. God, please help us to cling to the gospel, to go on believing it, to in our claim as Christ followers to present a countercultural message to the world around us, that Jesus lives. Lord, we need you for this task. We pray that you would empower us for it. In Christ's name, amen.